0: Lord Jesus, we ask You, Lord, would You bless us with Your voice? We want to hear from You tonight. We desire to hear Your Word spoken. In Jesus' name, Amen. I have chosen a single verse out of Revelation 17 for our Easter Sunday text because it brings together the resurrection victory of Jesus in In a stunning written form, I'll give you four words from it right now. If you want to peek ahead, Revelation 17, verse 14, about halfway into the first sentence, just four words. The lamb will overcome. The lamb will overcome. The little lamb slain. It's that same word we have seen. If you've been with us in our study through Revelation, if you haven't, the word is arneon in the Greek, and it means little lamb, and it is used over and over and over to describe Jesus in this remarkable book of Revelation, the little lamb slain, the Arneon. uh, Of Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, He's the one, the lamb, the little lamb will overcome. And it's what makes this Friday so good. Now, we're going to look at the overcoming to come, but tonight we need to drift back and consider the slaying that started it all. And what I'd like to do on this Good Friday is simply listen to Jesus. To hear Him, the little lamb slain, in the seven words or sayings of Jesus on the cross. Maybe you've studied these. And Maybe you've heard them at different times. I'm sure many of you have heard at least different ones of them. I don't know if you've ever studied them all together or just gone one after the other in chronological order. And we can follow it through, piecing it together through the four Gospels, what Jesus said, in what order, and how He spoke these words. Books have been written on the subject. And sermons across 2,000 years, I can't even imagine how many sermons have been preached from the seven words of Jesus. And again, words as sayings. The seven things that Jesus spoke from Calvary, from the cross, during His most gut-wrenching, significant day of His earthly ministry. As Jesus was led out to Calvary. As He was laid out on that wooden altar. As His arms were stretched out and the nails were driven through His hands. And driven through His feet. And then He was hoisted up and the way they would do it is they would drop the cross literally down into a hole deep enough that it would stay standing. And so the entire body would be jarred. Oftentimes just by the setting up of the cross the bones would go out of joint. It's an incredibly brutal and painful way to be executed. And so they put Jesus up there and... And He spoke, but very little. If you spread out what Jesus said, according to the Gospels, over six hours, He only spoke a total of roughly 50 words. 50 words in six hours. On the cross, Jesus was relatively quiet, and yet He was purposeful In his words, Isaiah 53 verse 7 said as much, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The implication of the prophecy is that the little lamb would not open his mouth in protest. Not that he wouldn't say anything, but that he would not say anything in scorn or anger or spite, or vindictiveness. He wouldn't clamor for His innocence. He would simply speak certain significant sayings. Peter witnessed it. From afar, we believe, because right there at the cross, the only apostle who was right there was John. We know for a fact. And and some of the women who had followed Jesus all the way from the Galilee, Peter... Spoke of things that happened at the cross with an eyewitness perspective. So we think perhaps Peter was off at a distance, perhaps hiding and, and looking and then looking away and looking again and looking away. But, but he witnessed some things and he wrote in first Peter chapter two, verse 23 that while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return while suffering, he uttered no threats. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So, seven sayings of deep, profound significance. Every single one of them. There's not a word that Jesus spoke, and recognizing that, that Jesus is intentional, he never spoke out of turn. But especially on the cross, if you knew you had six hours left in your life and you were given seven sayings that you could say, seven things to share, what would they be? And these are the seven sayings of Jesus. We'll begin with the first one if you'd like to turn back to Luke chapter 23. And I'd like you to turn to each one of these seven and just take a look at them with me. So Luke chapter 23, we will be between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we consider these sayings. The first words from Jesus on the cross, verse 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Is that the first thing you would say? The first thing that would come to mind if you were the one hanging on a cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Man, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, and it's not judgment, and it's not condemnation, it's not curses or again, scorn, it's, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. You ever just smash your thumb with a hammer? What's the first word out of your mouth? Don't say it. But just the pain alone of the nails freshly driven. And yet He had the presence of mind to say, Father, forgive them. And by the way, it reveals the heart of the Father as well. Jesus is not saying, I forgive you. He's saying, Father, forgive them. And we know it's the heart of the Father because Jesus said in John 8.28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on My own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught Me. How can Jesus speak forgiveness? Because that's the heart of the Father. John 14.10, He said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on My own initiative, but the Father abiding in Me does His works. So Jesus spoke forgive. He spoke by the Father's heart. And then He said something even more remarkable in fact it to me is what makes the forgiveness from the cross all the more breathtaking he said they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they're doing how deep the love of God to recognize that those crucifying him and shouting him down and spitting at him and scorning him didn't know what they were doing the most clueless of clueless wonders in all history at the foot of the cross. And yet, we rarely know what we're doing when we sin. When we rebel against God, we rarely really are thinking about the big picture. The depth of the spiritual reality that God sees when we sin. That, that Jesus sees when we rebel. Our sin, you see, it's time and space limited. When I sin, it's in the moment. I'm thinking about the moment. I'm not thinking about the sin, unless i planned it. I mean, let's be honest, some of us do that. But we're right here in the now, and we're not thinking about the cross, and we're not thinking about Jesus, and we're not thinking about eternity. We're just in the moment. God sees all of that. All of eternity at once, as the sin is taking place. And while our rebellions may seem trifling and insignificant on the eternal stage, God sees the big picture. No wonder Jesus could say they don't know what they're doing. God comprehends the complications. What my sin today is going to bring in my life down the line. I don't see that. I don't think about that. He sees it. He understands the full weight of it. And yet... In light of all that, Jesus still cries, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. It's why He came. To offer forgiveness to a foolish, clueless people. And then if you skip over to verse 39, still there in Luke chapter 23, we get to the second saying, Picking up in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom? And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Perhaps the most remarkable statement of grace in the entire Bible. And works-oriented people don't like this story. Explain the thief on the cross, says the grace-filled follower of Jesus. And the self-righteous man says, yeah, it was an exception to the rule. Because the truth is, this thief recognizing his own sin, that by the way, he admits was bad enough to land him on a cross. Confessing that, this thief in the moment asks to be with Jesus when there is nothing he could do to earn it. No behavior, no action No act of goodwill or kindness to try to erase some of the mess that he had made of his life resulting in his execution. And he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says by grace, today. Today you will be with me. And that's the point of grace. It is not something you can earn. The thief was not, my friends, the exception. He was the rule. And the rule is you cannot earn your salvation. You trust Jesus for it. And He offers it freely. He said, John 6.29, a verse we quote a lot around here, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Can you do that? Man, you can do that hanging on a cross. And so the thief did. By the way, this also was no promise of the sweet by and by. You know, a, a distant awakening to someday eternal life. Jesus said, Today, which tells us what happens when a person dies in Christ. Today, you are with him in paradise. And paradise, well, paradise, as wonderful as that sounds, wasn't even the best part because Jesus said, Today you shall be with me. That's life. To be with Jesus. Man, to be with Jesus in paradise or to be with Jesus walking through the valley of the shadow of death makes no difference to be with Jesus that's life and John tells us as much 1 John 5 20 we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ this is true God and eternal life eternal life is Jesus man And it's being with Him, so He says in His second profound, beautiful, touching statement, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Now following the chronology of this, we've got to turn over now to John chapter 19. So if you'll turn there, we'll come to the third saying of Jesus. The third saying of Jesus, John 19, and we'll pick it up in verse 26. Now remember, Jesus is intentional. He has seven things He's going to say. If you only had seven, what would you say? Well, Jesus is choosing exactly what He needs to say, what He must say. And so the third thing, verse 26 of John 19, when Jesus then saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, we believe John, standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son, And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Mary didn't go home that night. She went home with John. Seems like a trifling thing. He's just setting up mother care, you know. Just take care of her. You know, from the cross. Why include that in the Scriptures, Lord? I mean, what's the big deal here? Hey, the big deal is that Torah law required that the firstborn son of any family care for his parents. And so here's Jesus on the cross, and He is fulfilling the law. Still! Still keeping the law flawlessly in both life and in death. Matthew 5.18, He said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So He's fulfilling law as He hangs on the cross. Unbelievable, amazing, fantastic. But it's more. Family matters to God. Family is important. His mother, His disciple, that people are taken care of, that there is koinonia... That there is family and love and care. Family matters to God. By the way, we know that John's mother Salome was there at the cross. She's standing there as all of this took place. When Jesus entrusted Mary to John, who is Salome's son, what's she thinking? Hey, 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 hey! I'm his mother! I've earned the right. I brought him into this world and I can take him out. You know what is Salome thinking here? As Mary is entrusted and suddenly you have you have a blended family. Now Mary's in the household. Salome's going to have to put up with her. You know they say blood is Thicker than water, you've heard the saying. It's it's a way of saying that those who are of a bloodline are closer than those who come into a family. You know what? I only agree with the statement that blood is thicker than water if the blood belongs to Jesus. And you know, we experience this in this family, don't we? That blood is thicker than water. That extended family, sometimes non believing family, you, you, you struggle being as close to as you do to brothers and sisters in Christ. Because his blood is thicker still. And in Jesus Christ, you know what makes no difference? It makes no difference if we're adopted, step, in law, outlaw, blended, sliced, diced, or pureed. It just doesn't matter. We are family. It's been a remarkable blessing in my life to have adopted children. And many families here at the bridge who have adopted children. And our fellowship has adopted each other, and you know what? We have all been adopted as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. But what's been amazing to me, and I knew this—I knew this mentally. I understood this prior to bringing our children home, but I didn't know it spiritually. I didn't know it emotionally, like I do now. That these are my kids. They are my kids. Even to the point that whereas I I love the daily kids, they're not my kids, not my problem. (laughs) Love you guys. Truly. But but Anna Marie, Naomi, David, these are my kids. And I would die for them. I love them that much. More than Corey, Hannah, and Hayden? No. I'd die for them too. But these are my kids. And and, and that's the thing that Jesus does. That's where... Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Jesus makes connections in life by His own blood that are far deeper, richer, and more eternal than any we can make simply by being born into a family. It's what He does. So this is an amazing moment because in Jesus... And by the way, this is the secret to any blended family or any family at all... That in Jesus, through Jesus, and by Jesus, families hold together. He's the key. The next thing he says, we're going to flip over the fourth statement to Matthew 24. Or, sorry, Matthew 27. Matthew 27. If you want, you can turn to Mark 15 because it's the same thing. Matthew and Mark only record one statement of Jesus. Whereas John and Luke pick up all the rest. John gives us three Luke gives us three, and then Matthew and Mark give us one. And it's the same one, so we'll just take it from Matthew 24, verse 46. It was about the ninth hour when Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli! Eli! Lama sabachthani! That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most famous statements of Jesus on the cross, and one of the more confusing My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question is, was he? Was Jesus forsaken by God? It is popular Christian romantic belief that at that moment, God turned his back on Jesus. And we explain that by saying God's perfect. He cannot abide sin. Therefore, He could not look upon Jesus with all the sin of the world dripping off of Him on the cross. God couldn't abide that. He had to turn His back on Jesus. And in that moment, there was a break in all eternity between Father and Son. And I say, no. Tell you what, if God cannot look on sin, we all would still be lost. He looked on you and your sin. He looked on me in my filth and decided to go to the cross. Decided His love was that big. So was Jesus forsaken? Did God the Father turn the turn His back on God the Son? And I don't believe He did. Listen, understand this. Jesus on the cross was fully man. So as He hung there, 100% human as fully man, I'm sure He felt forsaken. I mean, wouldn't you... Wouldn't you feel alone and left? All of your friends had had abandoned you or you wouldn't be in the place that you're in. And so I believe in the flesh that Jesus, the the physical man felt perhaps forsaken. And in fact, in his prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in the entire New Testament Jesus refers to him as my God. All the rest of the time, it's my Father. My Father. It's Abba, Father. But only here, my God. He's fully man. But don't forget, and this is why God could not have turned his back on Jesus, because Jesus Christ was also fully God on the cross. Fully man, fully God. He was never not God, it was God on the cross. The God man. Prove it to me, Rick. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So, the wrath of God, and this is big, I mean, it's bigger than my finite mind even comprehends, but the wrath of God is poured out on God the Son, Christ the Son, but that wrath was not satisfied vicariously, as if from a distance. The wrath of God was satisfied personally. God doesn't send someone else to do his bidding, God does his bidding in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, how can God the Father be in heaven and God the Son be on the cross? I don't know! I don't understand that! I will someday, I think. But I can only tell you what the Bible declares. Well, if that's the case, then why does Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever the rabbi? Jesus is pointing His disciples to the passage of immediate instruction. See, this is what a rabbi would do. They didn't have verses, they didn't have chapters in their Bibles, they had scrolls. And if a rabbi was going to teach, say, from Isaiah, rather than say, turn to Isaiah 53, he would say, turn to the, the book turn to Isaiah or he would quote the first line of the book and a good disciple would know what the first line of the book was what's the first sentence Jesus says my God my God why have you forsaken me Psalm 22 it's as though Jesus on the cross is saying turn to the text Psalm 22 verse 1 my God my God why have you forsaken me Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Students, pupils, disciples, Jesus says, this is what's happening. Psalm 22, this is what's happening. Read it, go look at it. I wonder if anybody did. I wonder if if after the crucifixion, as they headed to their homes in mourning and in sorrow, if someone didn't go, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I recognize that. And unrolling the scroll of the Psalms and going there, beginning to read things like Psalm 22, verse 6 I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Wait a minute. That's what they were saying at the cross. That was happening at Calvary. They read further and read, My strength is dried up, verse 15, like a potsherd. My, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I just saw that. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them? And for my clothing they cast lots. That's what the Romans were doing at the foot of the cross. Why does Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the rabbi is teaching. Class is yet in session. Read the prophetic psalm. Jesus would say, Then and now, this is what is taking place before your very eyes. And so the fourth saying was a teaching from the cross of Calvary. Well, let's turn back to the Gospel of John. Back to the Gospel of John for the fifth saying of Jesus, John chapter nineteen, John nineteen, verse twenty-eight, John nineteen twenty-eight. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture said, I am thirsty. Big deal. I mean, I don't mean to sound uncompassionate. He's thirsty. Give him a drink. Of course someone would say that. Three, four, five hours on the cross with nothing to drink blood draining out of you. And as you're losing blood, you are losing fluid. You've you've got to be thirsty. No wonder Psalm 22 said, my tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. His mouth is dry. He's thirsty. Of course you would say, I'm thirsty. That's not significant. Let's move on to number six. (laughs) Don't. I am thirsty. Note how this is written. It's interesting. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Or, or, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture said, I am thirsty. And here's the significance. Jesus is fulfilling prophetic Scripture with three words. I am thirsty. Psalm 69.21 says, they gave me gall for my food. Gall was a painkiller. They, they put it on a sponge, put it on the end of a stick. They would give it to people on a cross to numb the pain, to deaden the pain enough so that someone could actually last longer, three, maybe four days hanging on a cross. It's part of the brutality of the Roman system of crucifixion. When they gave him the gall, he wouldn't take it. He refused it. Because Jesus would feel every last pang of pain as He bore our sin on the cross. But the psalm says, they gave me gall for my food. He rejected that. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. I am thirsty. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to His mouth. He's fulfilling the Word of God with a raspy dry throat to the bitter end. But consider what is taking place while he's fulfilling the Scripture. I I am thirsty. Who is that coming from? It's coming from the One who said to the woman at the well, John 4.14, "...whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life." The eternal well of living water is Thirsty. John seven thirty seven. He said, "If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water." Jesus supplied the living water of His Holy Spirit by His own dying thirst. Remarkable, profound, and then came the sixth word. Therefore, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished! And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. There are two parts to this. Two sayings actually that happen right here. But first, John tells us, He said, It is finished. Completed. Perfected. Fulfilled with that awesome cry. Many of you know the Greek word by now. Tetelestai. One word. Tetelestai, He speaks. It's finished. What? What was finished? His suffering, for one thing. He's at the end of that. Done. God's wrath for another. Done. Satisfied. And our salvation? Done and done. Romans 6:10 tells us for the death that he died he died to sin once for all but the life that he lives he lives to God. 1 Peter 3:18 for Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God and once again I repeat there is nothing you can do to add to that. Nothing you can do that Jesus didn't fully accomplish 100% on the cross. You can't go to purgatory and buy extra time. You can't pray a rosary and buy extra favor. You can't be consistent in your church attendance such that nobody could possibly keep up with how much time you spend at the church. It's not going to matter. You cannot add to the finishing work of Jesus Christ. You can't improve on it either. You know? Well, Lord, if I do this for you, it makes it just a little bit better. Not even possible. All our sins all our transgressions our failures our wrongs are done over paid up finished at the cross it is finished one more thing was finished by the way in terms of its hold on life Paul wrote about it in first 1 Corinthians 1555 oh death where's your victory today we might say oh death what up <laughs> Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. And almost in that same breath, you can turn now to Luke 23, 46. And the final saying of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, 46. I'll start in verse 44, give you a chance to turn there. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, John tells us, first said, die! it is finished. And said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. And even with his last breath, Jesus is quoting Scripture. Psalm 31, verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. We have scratched the surface tonight. I encourage you to go back between now and Sunday and read the seven sayings that we've gone over and think about them. What is he saying to you with each one? How is he touching or speaking to your heart with each one? But I got to add one last thing because, hey, it's me. <laughs> seven words of Christ on the cross. Seven words. Seven sayings. How many bold judgments? Turn back to Revelation 16. Revelation 16. And this is easy to find, so I'm not going to give you any time. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. Every living thing in the sea died. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. It was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of the pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet three unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out into the kings of the whole world and gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty." And then Jesus inserts, and I love it, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called har Megedon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Seven bowl judgments. Seven sayings of Jesus at the cross. You all send me really interesting emails. (laughs) No, you do. You do. And and I I, I think I get probably more blessed than anybody else because as, as I'm teaching, I'm getting emails about, hey, did you think about this? Did you hear about this? Hey, what do you think of this idea? And I get these all the time and I always stop and read them. I don't always reply, but I always stop and read them. And Paul sent me one. He said, what do you think of this? I began to process and and listen and look and investigate because the parallel was suggested just a couple of weeks back between each saying of Jesus on the cross and each successive bold judgment. The suggestion was made that if you line them up chronologically, the seven sayings of Jesus and the seven bold judgments, that there are remarkable parallels. Well, I had to investigate I hadn't heard this anywhere else. I've seen it in no Bible commentaries. You can Google it. You can go online. You will find nothing. Zero has said about it. John Corson's daughter mentioned at a weekend retreat to her dad and those there, I think there's a parallel. And John Corson mentioned in a sermon that there was a parallel, perhaps, and then he didn't even go into what it was. Nice. Thanks a lot. Are there parallels? Revelation 16 verse 2 tells us the first angel went and poured his bowl out on the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And in his first saying at Calvary, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Interesting. Parallel. Jesus offers forgiveness in spite of our futility because, as I said before, often when we sin, we don't know what we're doing. We really don't know what it is that we're wreaking havoc on in our lives or in others' lives or even eternally. We don't know. We don't see the big picture. Neither do they. No one's going to be fooled into taking the mark of the beast. They're going to know it's the mark of the beast. I mean, it's not just a computer chip. It's a tattoo. Either the 666 or the name of the beast is going to be on the right hand or on the forehead. They're going to know that much, but they're not going to really know what they're doing. On the cross, Jesus said, if you sin, you don't even have a clue. Forgiveness is offered. Forgiveness is yours. And the difference between the cross and the bold judgment is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, forgiveness comes free." the bowl judgment is God's response to the rejection of forgiveness. And so boils are poured out. Verse 3 says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. And in the second saying, Jesus said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. How does that parallel there? Uh, You can contrast paradise with the shores of the seas washing up thick dead blood. I mean, can you imagine going to Hawaii for a a, a two-week vacation and suddenly you go down to the beach and blood's washing up? Well, that's not paradise. That's a complete utter contrast. We can say yes, that Jesus gave paradise to the thief because of the own outpouring of his own blood at that very moment. He's bleeding out as he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So, Perhaps a connection starts to get difficult. I, I, I've warned you about this before, and this is where we have to be careful, that we take devotional ideas and we make them our exegesis. That is, we make it our, our, our hermeneutic, our interpretation of Scripture. We get a, a cool devotional thought, like perhaps, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, God must have turned His back on Jesus, and we turn it into this whole theology. So we got to be careful and make sure that we're understanding what the word says, what is actually intended. You can draw devotional ideas and applications all over the place, but watch that the interpretation is what the Bible is saying. There are other parallels. I mean, think about it. God blacks out the sun. Sun goes completely dark in the bowl judgments. Well, the sun goes blacked out for three hours at Calvary, perhaps signifying what would ultimately come. That tongue-gnawing darkness of the fifth bowl. There are There's an earthquake at the death of Jesus, splits the, the veil of the temple, shakes the rock, shakes the world. Well, guess what happens in the seventh bowl judgment? The entire planet shakes. So, again, parallels, but... But it breaks down chronologically. So, Paul, there's your answer. (laughs) If you you lay them side by side, like, like I said, you can make devotional comparisons, but I don't think it's intentional that Jesus had seven sayings and there are seven bowl judgments except for this. Except for this. As the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, we do hear a loud voice coming out of the temple saying, "...it is done." It is done verse 17 of chapter 60. And it is done we talked about Wednesday that is gegonen in the Greek gegonen it's from the word ginomai and it means it's done it's, it's emptied out whereas the sixth statement from the cross is slightly different Jesus says tetelestai it's finished not gegonen it's done tetelestai it's finished what's the difference It is done means the wrath of God is fully poured out. It is finished is Jesus saying the wrath of God is now fully absorbed. We know this with absolute assurance that at the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs so that no one would ever have to experience Revelation 16. What I'm saying is, while we study the bold judgments, they are not for you. The trumpet judgments are not for you. The sealed judgments are not for you. The wrath of God poured out in the tribulation described from Revelation 6 through 19 is not for you. It is not for anyone who will accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ at the cross. 2,000 years ago and He has been speaking it ever since. And that is the message of Good Friday. That the tribulation is not for anyone who believes in Jesus. Amen. And so my, my question for you all this evening is very simply, will we join Jesus in saying, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Father, it is my prayer that every person in here, from youngest to oldest, that we will commit ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. Lord, again, I, I mean, my daughters were up there, so I was so impressed with the dancing, but all the girls did such a beautiful job, and, and I found myself praying, Lord, for each one of them, that it would not just be a dance, but it would be their hearts committed to You for the rest of their lives. And Father, I pray that for each one of us in this room tonight that this would not be a dance. It would be our hearts. And that we would be fully committed to You. The Holy Spirit, move among us. Draw us near to You. If anyone is standing off at a distance like Peter at the cross, if anyone is unsure of Jesus, I pray that You would bridge the gap by Your Spirit tonight. Bring us near. Draw us to Jesus Christ and to salvation and forgiveness that can only be found in Him. And we thank You Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.